Chapter 5 The Research Question, Ethical Considerations, and Research Design. This chapter addresses areas that practitioner action researchers need to think through as they anticipate beginning research projects in their own sites. There is often a sense for insiders to the action research process that there is not a clear cut beginning, or for that matter, end to the research. Sometimes a beginning or end is imposed as in the beginning of a university course or the end of employment in the setting. We are not usually starting as blank slates. That is, it is not that we have not given thought to some of the issues we want to explore, but rather that they continue to puzzle us. Or perhaps in professional readings, we have become intrigued by unique approaches or ideas and wonder what it would be like to try to apply them in our own settings. The idea here is that our professional dilemmas and puzzles, our frustrations, or what we learn from others' writings, are all fruitful grounds for action research. Each researcher should assume that there are a number of questions that could be relevant and interesting to pursue in her or his site. Practitioner action research takes place in local contexts at given points in time amid various vested interests. It is worth researchers considering the potential risks they may be taking and asking particular questions to take into account the politics of the local context in whom, including themselves, they may place at risk through their inquiry. It is good to consider these issues because once the action research spiral is set into motion, researchers should not assume its spiraling is totally under their control. It is impossible to completely anticipate the directions the inquiry will take or the kinds of interests it will attract or threaten. One unique aspect of doing insider action research is that we are initiating research in a setting where we may already have relationships. It may also be a place where we intend to stay for a long period of time, even if the research ends. Given these realities, Insider researchers may ask themselves what research question they want to take on and what feels too politically volatile to tackle at a given point in time. This problem is somewhat lessened when research is done collaboratively with other teachers or stakeholders or is done around research questions of interest to the whole school. We are not suggesting here that the right research question is always the one that makes us feel safe. Rather, we are suggesting that institutional realities factor into the decision to pursue one research question over another as the researcher assesses possible trade-offs and complexities. Depending on the context, a researcher may make the choice to deliberatively put a question on the back burner for a while, perhaps to be considered at another time, or conversely, an issue may strike at the core of a researcher's ethics, or bottom line, and from that vantage point it may feel impossible not to pursue. In this case, the researcher may decide to pursue a question because it is ethically difficult not to, even if it seems risky for the researcher professionally or personally. Practitioner action research is deliberatively set in motion to bring about changes to ourselves and our practices and perhaps our school institutions. In this sense, it is a disturbing form of research in that it has the potential to interrupt the status quo. If, as the researchers, we have set these possible changes in motion, we may welcome the insights that come with the data gathering process and even happily anticipate the changes. Others in the site may feel differently and may see the inquiry as a threat or an imposition something done to them rather than chosen. We pointed out in Chapter 2 that when institutional interests are disturbed or are anticipating being disturbed, they rally to maintain institutional equilibrium. Our stance as researchers is to be neither naive about the forces that may push back on our hoped-for changes, nor unnecessarily adversarial, creating an unwanted us-versus-them situation. Our hope with action research is that communities of inquiry could be developed in school sites where an institutional stance embraces data gathering and analysis as tools of professional development, because this seems to be the most probable way that authentic changes can come about.
crafting a question for study. Research questions are often formalized versions of puzzles that the practitioner or persons involved have been struggling with for some time, and perhaps even acting on in terms of problem solving. The decision to do more systematic inquiry on a puzzling issue is one of asking, quote, what issue or problem am I really trying to solve? How might data shed light on this? End quote. It is, in essence, a stepping back a bit from what is often a daily struggle or puzzle to gain perspective through systematic inquiry. Formalizing the puzzles of practice into research is a way of working better rather than doing more of the same, only harder. A question for the practitioner action research may come out of a frustration, a practice puzzle, or a contradiction in a setting. This is what we say we do, but do we? Often these things a practitioner has been giving thought to for some time. The research question most often addresses something the practitioner wants to do better or understand more clearly. Our own experience indicates that there is probably nothing more important to action research than getting clear on the question being asked. Our experience also indicates that this can take a bit of time, that questions shift and evolve. We, in fact, expect this as we gather data and begin a cycle of the research. Part of the process of action research is this ongoing focusing on the issue in relation to the data gathered. So we are suggesting a conundrum of sorts here, that there is nothing more important than continuing to get clear on the research question, and that this could continue to evolve and morph in relation to the data and problem solving. We start with our current understanding of the research question and see where the data and analysis push us. We have learned that we can trust the action research process to bring into sharper relief the issues for study and change that the process will deepen our understanding of the question, as well as the complexity of moving toward potential changes. This kind of deepened understanding is in fact one of the validity checks we propose for insider action research. See chapter two. Individual or collective questions. The distinction between an individual's question and a collective one may not be as stark as it appears. Our own experience is that an individual's research question often has a spillover effect. Just doing inquiry in a site seems to send ripples through the environment, where others become interested, threatened, or intrigued. It is also common that as data are gathered, the researcher wants to talk about it, furthering the conversation in the larger school community. The questioning stance seems to lend itself to asking why we carry out business as usual and provoke new conversations about the status quo. Because insiders doing action research in their own sites is such a complex undertaking, and because it can become quite political. We have suggested that, if possible, it is best undertaken collaboratively. Action research can move at a rapid pace. Schools move ahead on various issues based on demands placed on them, rather than a researcher's schedule or even a researcher's findings. It can be helpful to have another researcher who is in ongoing conversation regarding both how to proceed and how to share the findings with the school community. Pragmatically, it can speed up the research process, since action researchers are typically not hired in their sites, primarily as researchers. Instead, it is something we do in our spare time. Having another colleague or two to help gather data can move the research process ahead in a timely manner. Sometimes the research evolves and gains greater visibility. Others want to become a part of it, while collaboration may start at the onset of a research project. For example, teachers come together in an inquiry group and decide on a focus of what they will pursue together. It can also become a part of the research as it progresses and others become interested. Because action research takes place in a local context with a goal of change, we see this development of increased interest and desire to collaborate as potentially part of the change process of perhaps helping to establish a community of inquiry in a school site. This community of inquiry can cross hierarchical lines, such as when a teacher and her students become co-researchers. 
as with the other forms of collaboration, this can be conceptualized at the beginning of the research, or it can evolve. For example, in Hare's research with the students of color recounted in Chapter 4, the students named themselves co-researchers, in essence, claiming it prior to Hare understanding it. The shift was one of moving away from studying the situation or students of color to one of conducting research with them. As one of the boys aptly put it, it's our school. In this case, the move was from the students being participants in the research to the role of co-investigators. A collective question across sites is also possible. In this case, the researcher has collaborators, but they are not necessarily in the same site. Rather, what they hold in common is the larger question that each researcher is interested in investigating in his or her own site. Researchers can share readings, share strategies, and act as critical friends to push each other's thinking. In cases such as these, each researcher has his or her own research project, yet sees a benefit in accruing a larger data set or being able to discuss the same issue across sites. This approach can be particularly useful when there are no collaborators with whom to work in one's own site, but the researcher would still like the support of thinking through issues with other researchers. Questions derived from outside assessments. Data gathering and analysis seem to be an omnipresent reality in an age of accountability in schools. This commonly results, for example, in aggregate test scores, comparing one school with another, noting overall strengths and weaknesses as reflected via the numbers. Schools and the educators who work in them face repercussions based on this data and, if the results are not positive, may face some imposed sanctions. Many of us insist that these scores give only a partial picture of the work done in schools and the achievement of our students. Others suggest that testing can expose inequities in school opportunities and can be an impetus for positive changes. In any case, accountability through testing is the current lived reality in schools, and based on how the results are interpreted, practices are changed with an eye toward improving these measures. Ironically, this is often a truncating of the action research process, where new practices are put in place. This could be a change in curriculum, a change in the arrangement and emphasis of teaching during the school day, etc., without a step back that asks, quote, what other data might we need to understand these results or to design effective interventions? End quote. But schools are often under pressure to quickly make changes and have the results of these changes reflected in the next cycle of test scores. It seems that there is no time to pose these other questions that might lead to fruitful problem solving. In situations such as these, it does not mean that those in the school community itself cannot embrace some of these questions and deepen the process. As mentioned earlier, educators problem solve all the time. Action research provides the vehicle to systematize this process, as well as ground it in data. So given the example outlined above, where interventions are being put into place, educators may decide on a concurrent set of data they would like to gather, addressing the questions, quote, so where is this taking us? Are these interventions improving practices for our students? Are there unintended consequences? What are the trade-offs, end quote. This kind of questioning would easily lend itself to fostering collaborative inquiry in a wider school context via an inquiry or study group. Is it feasible? Earlier, we suggested that researchers assess the potential risks in pursuing various questions in their sites. Considering the politics and risks involved is one part of a more general assessment around the question, is it feasible? By this, we suggest asking questions such as, quote, what resources would I need to do this research? What access would I need to gather the data I might need? Could I design a methodology that would really address the research question? Is it doable, given everything else I have to do? End quote. Some of this data will be hard to answer initially, given an action research spiral that continues to evolve in the face of initial data gathered and conclusions drawn. For example, 
when Hare first started her research on what she later called institutional racism in her site. The initial question being pursued was a personal one, one aimed at doing her job as a school counselor more effectively. But as she gathered data, she was drawn into wider spirals of data gathering that moved her beyond the day-to-day functions of her job to gathering data that were more school-wide. As it became clear that this was the direction in which the action research was taking her, the whole question of risks and resources had to be reassessed and reevaluated as the research proceeded. But some areas of feasibility are fairly predictable in insider action research. For example, time, not having enough of it, is virtually always an issue. Some data gathering techniques are kinder in terms of the resources they absorb, and in this sense, researchers can ask whether there is a methodological design that is doable, given the other demands on their time and other resources. Beyond the primary data gathering we ourselves do, it is good to ask what data are already available that can be brought to bear on the research question. Schools currently gather an incredible amount of data, some of which may be useful for the action research project. For example, early on in Eyre's study exploring the experience of students of color in her school, as she thought about their struggles to succeed, part of the data she was interested in was attendance records, or the students she was concerned about attending school on a regular basis. This was easily accessible data that had already been gathered via the routines of the school. School records of puzzling students are often another rich source of data, depending on the research question. The last thing educators need is one more thing to do. The experience of action research should be energizing, not draining. For this to be a realistic aim, issues of feasibility need to be carefully considered. We suggest asking questions such as, quote, How can current functions in an educator's day be integrated into the role of researcher? What does the day-to-day operation of a classroom or school site offer in the way of data? What would I have to add to the data gathering processes, and what would I need to be able to do this? End quote. Assessing Tacit Knowledge It is assumed that the researcher is not starting on the research question as a tabula rasa. We bring to the potential question our past experiences and the conclusions we have drawn. Unearthing the tacit knowledge we bring to a question can be an important source of data, but it also needs to be critically examined. Our research questions need to be framed in ways that could lead to genuinely new knowledge and potential changes in educational routines, our own included. The process of action research is designed to bring about changes, and one site for these changes is ourselves as researchers. We suggest asking, quote, what is it I already know, and how do I know it? How might this knowing limit or bias the way I am considering or asking my research question? End quote. These are important questions to process early on with a critical friend. As Costa and Callock suggest, a critical friend is a, quote, a trusted person who will ask provocative questions and offer helpful critiques, end quote. Often action researchers have been in their sites for quite a while prior to beginning a research project and need some help to step back and assess everyday practices with fresh eyes or to question assumptions. A critical friend poses questions such as, how do you know it's that and not this? And ask the researcher to interrogate her or his own ways of knowing. Maria Mercado drew on Little and Cochrane Smith's notion of the oral inquiry process when putting her critical friends in place for her study of her kindergarten classroom. Quote, During oral inquiry, teachers build on one another's insights to analyze and interpret classroom data and their experiences in the school as a workplace. For teachers, oral inquiries provide access to a variety of perspectives for problem posing and solving. They also reveal the ways in which teachers relate particular cases to theories of practice. End quote. Studying the impact of having native Spanish speakers in her bilingual kindergarten classroom, Mercado sought critical friends who could add their experience and insights to her study. 
One colleague, Fatima, was a well-respected bilingual educator who taught first grade. Mercado offers her rationale in tapping Fatima as a critical friend. Quote, her classroom context was very similar to mine. It was an early childhood bilingual education setting with a large number of Latino children. She was also interested in supporting bilingualism and biculturalism in the classroom. I believe that our discussions would prove not only supportive in improving my instruction, but also in helping me further consider the research questions in relation to my practice. End quote. Mercado and Fatima met together monthly, centering their discussions on the themes from Mercado's teacher journal. Mercado notes that the, quote, goal of the discussion was to bring a critical and reflective element to the study, end quote. She used the time to clarify the themes for the study as well as probe her instructional decision-making. In addition, quote, these served to triangulate the data sources by allowing me to check my impressions and understandings related to other data collected for the study, end quote. While Mercado tape-recorded their interaction, she did not transcribe these tapes. Instead, she, quote, listened to them again after the session and listed salient themes in a notebook titled Critical Friend, end quote. She also kept a running record during the conversations themselves, listing the topics that came up for discussion. She says the running record, quote, served to key my memory about the conversations, end quote. In keeping with Little and Cochran Smith's notion of the oral inquiry process, Mercado sees her collaboration with her critical friend as supporting her reflective process through a jointly constructed examination of educational issues in her classroom. Several other examples of relying on critical friends are in Chapter 3. Positionality We discuss the issue of researcher positionality in Chapter 1. Here we revisit the issue in relation to framing a research question. When considering positionality, we are essentially posing questions such as, quote, Who am I to this proposed research and to this site? Am I in a position of power over others in the institution who might potentially be involved in this research? End quote. Positionality can literally mean one's position in a school, that is, teacher, counselor, administrator, and so on, and where one is located in the institutional hierarchy, or who one has contact with on an ongoing basis. But it can also refer to one's positionality in reference to a proposed research question. In this latter case, the researcher could be an insider to the site, but not necessarily an insider to the proposed study meaning it is not the researcher's lived experience. For example, while Hare had worked extensively with students of color and had become concerned with their experiences in her school, when she formalized the research process initially, she asked two other colleagues, one African American and one Hispanic, to join in the research. In this case, she was an insider to the school, but an outsider to what it meant to be a person of color in it. On the other hand, as the research began to rename the issue as one of institutional racism, with much work to be done with white faculty. She was a member of that group and could bring those insights to the table. While it may be tempting to study our own school or classrooms for issues of convenience, it is important to build a case, to ourselves too, as to why it has to take place in our own sites or with our own students. If one of the purposes of our research is to improve our own practices, then it makes sense, obviously, to propose action research where we are located. Otherwise, if we are interested in a study about a certain topic in education, there is no compelling reason to conduct the study in one's own site, and in fact, it may be much simpler to conduct the study elsewhere. We are making the distinction here, for example, between the following research questions. How effective is mentoring for new teachers? Versus, how effective am I as a mentor to new teachers? Or, how well are we mentoring new teachers in my building? The former is a policy question and asks about the effectiveness of an educational intervention or practice. The latter asks about one's own practices as an educator or mentor, or about practices in one's site, and how they might improve. 
So potential researchers need to ask themselves the question, quote, why does the study have to take place in my own site, my own classroom, end quote. The answer should be one beyond our own convenience, or simply that we are located in a particular site and have easy access. We also assume that if we are conducting action research in our own sites, we are in the study ourselves, meaning we also are a focus of the study and will appear on the page. We are warning here against the outsider within position, where, although in the position of an insider, researchers write about the process as though they are outsiders. Action researchers, as we are discussing them here, are in the site as well as the site themselves for change. Action research is a systematically evolving process, a living process changing both the researcher and the situations in which he or she acts. Neither the natural sciences nor the historical sciences have this double aim, living the dialectic of researcher and researched. The researcher's role is characterized by the immediacy of the researcher's involvement in the action process. The researcher becomes as much a subject and learner as the participants. Action research is therefore not simply research done on other people. Summing up. We are not necessarily suggesting that any particular answers to the questions posed earlier in this section are fatal to the research process. Rather, our suggestion is that they be taken into consideration early on, since as the researcher considers where she or he is located, it may impact how the research question is framed or whether we invite others to collaborate with us in the process. It can also impact the methodological design of the research. Our own positionality also comes into play when considering issues of ethics and the granting of permission for the research. We take these up in the section that follows. Ethical Considerations Each research approach brings its own ethical challenges, and action research is no exception. Action research is a dynamic, evolving process, and we should assume that there is no foolproof plan to avoid ethical dilemmas as the research develops. Castle suggests that perhaps most important to the process is the ability to recognize an ethical issue when it arises, so that it can be taken into consideration. The work, then, is not to anticipate every possible ethical conundrum, as much as to commit to addressing them both before the research has begun and as they arise. Every researcher should assume that he or she will face ethical decisions as the research proceeds. At the same time, it is worth thinking through initially how to minimize any ethical dilemmas the researcher may face. The conversation about ethical research sometimes becomes conflated with gaining approval for the research from the district, from the university, from parents, etc. While getting approvals can certainly be a significant part of beginning the research process, it should not be confused with the ongoing questioning that researchers must pursue as the research develops, where we commit to continued interrogation of ourselves regarding what makes for ethical research in the sites in which we carry it out. Since action research unfolds and develops in unanticipated directions, this kind of interrogation is an ongoing process for researchers. Balancing Risks and Benefits Ethical considerations initially ask, quote, who might be harmed or put at risk by the research? If the research potentially puts someone in harm's way, how do I minimize that possibility? End quote. It may be startling to think of our research harming anyone or putting people at risk, but possible harms are probably defined and may be physical, psychological, legal, social, or economic. For example, harms could include damage to the professional reputation of someone who works at the site or inadvertent exposure of a participant's identity if the site under study is very small. The idea is to anticipate any possible harms and work to minimize them. Some of this can be done methodologically. For example, Faden, in a study of four students in her kindergarten classroom, capitalized on classroom routines and methods of gathering data that did not single out the four children on whom she focused. 
She commonly, as part of her teaching practices, videotaped her classroom. Faden set up the video camera when the children were out of the classroom and only had to record when the children re-entered the class. She writes in her dissertation, quote, The video cam was set back in a corner on a tripod so that the children had little interference from it. Because I taped as part of normal classroom assessment and the children were used to this practice, there was very little comment on the procedure. I simply told the class I was taping, which is how I usually approach a regular taping session. End quote. To enhance the recording of conversations during the videotaping, Faden bought microphones and small tape recorders for all the tables of kindergartners, even though she was only transcribing the conversations at the one table where her four participants were sitting. She did this, she explains, so that, quote, the other children should not feel preferential treatment was given to the participants, end quote. An ethical goal in this example of teacher research was that no child would be given preferential treatment and that, in singling out any children in a classroom, the researcher would minimize the risk that others might feel excluded, just as physicians are guided by the Hippocratic Oath, requiring them to do no harm. According to their best judgment, this same sense of exercising professional judgment is required of action researchers. Researchers and the bodies designed to review and approve research are asked to perform a balancing act. They are asked to take into consideration the possible risks and benefits of a course of research and make difficult decisions when the ratio is ambiguous. Benefits of the research are balanced against possible risks. As we will see in the next section, this equation is one that comes into play in gaining necessary approvals for the research to move ahead. Most school districts have particular priorities in terms of areas they are focusing on for improvement. It can help action researchers gain permission for their research if they demonstrate how their projects might further insight or knowledge toward meeting the school district's goals or priorities. Gaining Needed Approvals Codes for Conduct and Research came out of atrocities that came to light during the Nuremberg war crime trials at the end of World War II. This history of research abuses led to the creation of ethics policies focusing on the protection of human subjects from exploitation or exposure to unacceptable levels of risk through their participation in research. In addition, some populations, such as children, were declared in need of special protections. Federal regulations to address these ethical concerns have their origins in the Belmont Report, issued by the National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research in 1979. This report set out the basic ethical premises that are embodied in current regulations. While the Belmont Report has been codified into rules of sorts, it is acknowledged in the report itself that it was intended as a guide rather than a clear-cut blueprint. The creators indicate that the rules, quote, often are inadequate to cover complex situations. At times, they come to conflict, and they are frequently difficult to interpret or apply, end quote. Educators do research for all kinds of reasons, to further their own professional growth and development to improve their practices, to fulfill the requirements of a course or a degree, or to generate knowledge for the larger field of education through presentations and publications. The question of whether or what approvals are needed to proceed is related in part to why the research is being done. Researchers should assume that if the research involves human participants and is going to be publicly disseminated, presented at a conference or to a public audience, written up for publication, etc., there is a high probability that some kind of permission will be needed to move ahead with the research. It is also not uncommon that initially researchers do not anticipate presenting their work publicly, but may change their minds or later have opportunities to present. It can be worthwhile to get any necessary permissions initially to have the freedom to go public with the results later if the opportunity should arise. School districts typically have a research office whose role is, in part, to review proposed research. Communities sometimes require a part in consent giving, as in the case of, for example, 
Indian pueblos. Private schools often have their own internal process to approve research. If the research is being proposed to fulfill, in part, coursework for a degree, it may also fall under the purview of the university's Institutional Review Board, IRB. One of the first tasks for the researcher is investigating what permissions might be needed to move ahead with the research. The paramount purpose of the IRB and other research review offices is to protect the rights and welfare of human subjects, anyone who might be a participant in the research. Many university IRBs have a special approval process for professors who have students to action research projects as part of course requirements. There are typically different levels of possible review, exempt, expedited, and full reviews. While it is beyond the purview of this chapter to discuss these fully, it is generally helpful to know that the first two categories typically move through the review process more quickly, since they are not dependent on assembling the whole review board. Normal educational practices that are of minimal risk to the participants potentially fall within the guidelines of exemption. The idea here is that educators study practices or routines that they typically employ in their daily work in their sites. Studies considered appropriate for expedited reviews are those that are considered minimal risk, even though they are in addition to the educator's typical daily practices. Any research that is considered beyond minimal risk in light of the perceived benefits is typically reviewed by the full committee. While charged with applying federal guidelines, permission-granting bodies operate in specific local contexts. It behooves any researcher to explore the local climate and get a sense of how action research is considered by those granting permissions and what the time frames are to go through the process. If more than one permission is required, for example, local school district and the university, time frames can stretch out longer than the researcher anticipates. Typically, these permissions need to be in place prior to beginning the research. While individual proposals are considered and decisions are rendered, any researcher's work can collect the history and dilemmas of other researchers who have previously approached the review boards. Permission-granting bodies typically have considerable folklore surrounding them that may include horror stories of those who have gone before in the process of requesting permission to proceed with proposed research. It can be helpful to get ideas and suggestions from those whose research has gone through the process. It can also be a good idea to go directly to the sources, to ask any questions or ask for examples from the decision-making body. In the best-case scenario, the researcher can forge an alliance with members of ethics boards, and both the researcher and the board can benefit from this kind of exchange. If, as hoped, action research has become increasingly common in universities and in school districts, those interested in seeing it facilitated are encouraged to work with the review boards to have some agreements as to how ethical research might be carried out and permissions typically granted. IRB offices and district research offices usually also have their own manuals to offer guidance to the researcher as well as templates of forms to be submitted. We would be remiss here not to mention that many action researchers are apprehensive that their research proposals are being reviewed under guidelines that were designed with traditional scientific experiments in mind, rather than action research. We have taken up the work of IRBs and district research offices and the dynamics of the permission granting process and action research at length in previous works. And in the following section, we will discuss some common concerns. Action research is a fundamental shift away from some standard research conventions, and because of this, it calls into question some conventional safeguards devised out of these alternate paradigms of research. The thing that action researchers and institutional reviewers hold in common is a desire for ethical practices in the research process. We have become increasingly convinced that the pushing into clarity of just what this means in terms of action research must be done jointly between practitioners and the local bodies that are in place to review proposals and research. The federal regulations require that the boards involved in the review processes possess sufficient expertise to judge the research proposals they review. 
Although it is important that these bodies develop an understanding of the risk and pressures peculiar to action research and specific populations, others with specific expertise may be brought in as consultants at the request of either committee or the researcher. Researchers may submit the names of individuals specifically qualified to review the proposals to their local boards for consideration. Many suggest that the ethical guidelines need to be rethought for action research. The question is one of whether it is appropriate to judge the ethical merits of an approach such as action research using criteria derived from other paradigms of research. Many action researchers see their IRBs as gatekeepers or as a hindrance to their research, or worse, as irrelevant. Action researchers can play a part in educating their local research boards to the complexities of action research. For example, when reporting our findings, we can also report our thinking through the ethical situations we encounter in the field. This kind of information could be used to assist in a reading of the federal guidelines in light of the evolution and development of action research.